This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Sharon Marcus, who's the author of The Drama of Celebrity. This book was published in 2019 by Princeton University Press, and it is a really fascinating dive into the idea of celebrity as well as the history of celebrity. Um, in the West in particular. But I'm going to let Sharon tell us a little bit about that, a lot about that, after she tells us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hi, Sharon. Hi. So tell us a little about yourself and how you came to this project. So I'm a professor of English and comparative literature, and I've always focused on 19th century France and England. And When I moved to Columbia University in 2003, I joined an English department that also had a drama and performance program. And I started to work with graduate students who were much more interested in 19th century theater than anyone I'd ever worked with before. And I learned a lot of really interesting things in the process of engaging more with the history of 19th century theater. And one of them was that 19th century theater was to its day kind of what television was to the 1950s, the scale of 19th century theater was beyond what I'd ever imagined. There were millions of people going to the theater every year. Theatrical stars were global celebrities who would take steamships to other continents and spend a year touring them. Their faces were known, their names were known, and millions of people had seen them in person. So this was a little mind-blowing to me because I grew up very interested in dead celebrities. I was a bit of a nerd. So when everybody else was coming to school talking about like Farrah Fawcett or David Cassidy, I was really interested in the stars of the Hollywood era, many of whom were either decrepit in the 1970s or just plain dead. And, uh, you know, Betty Davis, Catherine Hepburn, Clark Gable. And I thought that, Hollywood had invented celebrity. And in fact, that is a myth that Hollywood pervade about itself. That And what they were really talking about was there was a moment when films began to be widely circulated where they were just filming people crossing the street, a dog on a table, and there was no cast. And then there came this moment where they started listing the players. And so that was the moment when films started being invested in celebrity. But in fact, celebrity started much earlier. Most people would say it started in the 18th century with the rise of theater and easier ways of presenting images. But what I came to see was that the 
the 19th century theater system was a central node of celebrity culture. But if we look at it from the point of view of media history, the crucial moment in the birth of modern celebrity was the rise of photography, the rise of the mass press, the integration of the two. And let's throw in there the rise of means of travel that allowed people to move around. Because one of the things that I think defines celebrity culture then and now is that it combines representation and presence. Mostly we first encounter celebrities through looking at pictures of them or reading their tweets or it's virtual, but it's crucial that we could meet them in real life. And even today when everything is so mediated by the internet, music, pop stars, rock stars are still touring and filling arenas. Presidents are still holding rallies, even in a pandemic. The ability to encounter the person that you've only seen in pixels or on paper remains really compelling. Um, I can say a little more about how I got specifically to the topic of this project, but I'll pause for a minute and see where you'd like to direct me next. Yeah, and I and I wanted to ask you, because you, you start talking about early in the book, um, you know, as you just noted, the rise of photography, the rise of the mass press and the rise of the means of travel was one of the ways that sort of celebrity started to gel. Um, but in the book, you really have this nicely defined sort of three part, I would say, three legged stool um, that is really our understanding of and your the framework through which you do a lot of the analysis of how we think about celebrity and how it functions. Can you talk about those more contemporary sort of pieces of that three-legged stool? Sure. I would actually say the three-legged stool, and and that's a great way of putting it because without one of the legs, the stool falls down. So all of the three legs are equally necessary. Is sort of it present for any time we have celebrity, even if it's in antiquity. One, so these are the three crucial components of celebrity culture. One is celebrities themselves. The second is the public who engages with them. Some of them might be fans, some of them might be haters, some of them might be the people who roll their eyes and say, why do I have to keep hearing about Kim Kardashian? I don't even know who she is, but that's the public. So celebrities, publics, and media, because it's the media that brings celebrities to the public. The celebrities can never be relying only on their ability to travel to get in front of the public. So again, let's take even ancient Greece, a place that we think is as pre-modern in terms of its media as they come. You know, all those statues that we now see that are like the Greek statues, many of them were of celebrities and the Greeks were able to produce those kind of not on mass at the scale of millions, but in multiples so that every town could have its statue of the famous politician, the famous athlete, the famous actor, the Olympic games made athletes very popular. People wanted to be able to see images of the athletes. So there you have the three-legged stool, the athlete, the celebrity, the public, all the people who attend games and were interested in who won them, the media, statues, marble, bronze, that were able to be replicated and could exist in multiples and could exist separately from the stars or the celebrities themselves and could therefore allow more members of the public 
to be engaging with and familiar with and cognizant of the celebrities. And this was this is what I found so interesting because you you take this frame and you keep applying it in all of these different contexts as you trace historically sort of our understanding of modern celebrity culture. Um, and I really, really enjoyed it. But one of your avenues into this sort of understanding of celebrity culture is Sarah Bernhardt, which was not exactly where I was expecting the book to go. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I can talk a little more about how I decided to make Sarah Bernhardt the focus. It was a pretty winding road. I mean, I've always been interested in Sarah Bernhardt because I was interested in French culture and she was a, a very charismatic figure and uh, one of the few French women of the 19th century who had international renown. And anyone who works on 19th century literature, there's always these sexy actresses who have a lot of attitude and are both uh, a little bit outside the pale, but also have more power than the average woman did. Uh, and, you know, since you're a political science uh, pod, uh, podcaster, when uh, Hannah Arendt writes in origins of totalitarianism about the pariah figure. I think Sarah Bernhardt was one of those pariah figures, someone who is a bit outside mainstream society, but exercised extra power because of her outsider position. So, you know, originally I was very interested in Oscar Wilde because I was interested in the phenomenon of how someone so almost deviant, you know, who is perceived as being so eccentric and kind of by his own account, an outlaw, someone who didn't respect the norms, who wasn't like other people. I was interested in how masses of people could come to be interested in people who themselves didn't follow the rules. And I think that this is, uh, well, I think it's an interesting conundrum for sociology, for politics, for culture in general, the ways that mass society and individualism rise hand in hand. And each seems to be sort of siphoning off some of the pressures of the other. And Sarah Bernhardt was definitely a figure like that, a, a Jewish woman in France at a time that was fairly hostile to Jews, not married, illegitimate. No one knew who her father was. She had a child without being married. She was incredibly public about all of these things, just sort of thumbing her nose at everything that, you know, in other respects, most women had middle class women, certainly, but even upper class women and working class women were really stigmatized for not doing. But she she was certainly a figure of, of fascination and sometimes ridicule and lampooning and hostility. But she was also incredibly popular. She made the equivalent of millions of dollars touring the world. People were fascinated with her. They admired her. They saw her as a great artist. And I was just really interested in this dynamic of how someone who was not obeying society's dicta could get society's affirmation in this way. And... And what you found, I thought, was really interesting. You, you, part of it, you tagged to the fact that she was also really talented, um, and people could see that talent when they saw her perform. Yes. So every study of the past has to be in relationship to the present, because not so much. I think for, I mean, sometimes that's because we 
can only see things through the lenses that we have on in the present. But I spend so much time thinking about the 19th century that sometimes I don't think I actually see the present through the lens of the present. It's more that in communicating with other people, I, I need to sort of help them understand why looking at the past could be interesting and relevant to understanding the present. And one of the things that I noticed when I told people that I was working on celebrity was I, I always had the same conversation. Unless I was talking to people who also work on celebrity or people who themselves identify as fans, which in general is not grown people. Like most people who identify as fans are teenagers or at most in their early 20s. So here's how the conversation would go. Um, when I first started the project around 2007, the figures were a little different. We'd be like, oh, what are you working on now? I'm working on a book about celebrity. Oh, celebrities like Kim Kardashian. I mean, why do people spend so much time being interested in these silly figures who are just famous for being famous and they don't have any talent and there's no real reason for us to be interested in them? And then I would say, hmm, well, how do you know Kim Kardashian is talentless? Have you actually spent any time watching her show or looking at what she does on social media? No, no, it's just every time I turn on the TV, there she is. I once had a, a, a very spirited debate with someone who started out talking about athletes and how much he admired various star athletes. And then when I said, oh, I'm working on celebrity, he said, oh, Kim Kardashian, why do people care so much about her? I said, why do you care so much about someone who knows how to catch a ball? And he said, are you serious? I said, I certainly am. Explain to me why you're so interested in someone whose main skill is catching a ball. So I found that in the present, when people think about a celebrity, they tend to think about a young woman who's known often a lot for her looks um, and who they perceive uh, often as vacuous and undeserving of her celebrity, undeserving of their attention, undeserving of the money she earns. I did sometimes try telling people that someone who can become so famous without any talent is clearly like the most talented person ever, but that, that usually didn't go so well. So <laughs> I was very interested in how celebrity had clearly become feminized. And there is this sort of vicious circle. Like we think of celebrities as young women known mostly for their looks. And we dismiss young women who we demand pay attention to their looks and we tend to only, as a culture, be interested in young women who we consider unusually attractive. So there's a lot of catch-22s going on that would be familiar to anyone who's done any reading in feminist theory and feminist analysis. And what was really striking to me when I went back and started reading all this material about Sarah Bernhardt from the 1860s through the 1920s was how seriously she was taken by the time she reached her 30s. I would say when she was in her 20s, there was a bit of a balance. Some people dismissed her um, and were kind of hostile to her, particularly because they didn't think she was attractive enough. One of the uh, historical quirks of, of studying Sarah Bernhardt was that she was criticized for being too thin, which is another example of how women can't win. You're, you know, either the norms demand that you be plump and then you're some people are well, some women are too thin or the norms demand that you be that you be thin and then some women aren't thin enough. But by the even even when she was in her 20s, there was this admiration for her intensity, 
the purity of her diction, the originality of her interpretation of these roles that she played, some of which were classic roles. And then as she got older, I saw that she was quite canny about increasing her prestige as a celebrity. And the last two chapters of my book are called Judgment and Merit. And I show that one of the ways that celebrities make their fame seem more justified and therefore more legitimate is that they deliberately put themselves in situations where they can be compared to other people who do what they do. I would say, you know, in the present day, or or they put themselves in situations where their fame can be quantified. So the way that today people count Twitter followers, and sure, you could say it's a self-referential thing that has no meaning, and yet people are very impressed by numbers. So the fact that Taylor Swift has the number of followers she does, Rihanna has the number of followers she does, that becomes, and I think it's something to do with democracy and the way that democracy values majorities, that becomes significant in and of itself. Awards. So the way that pop music, film, record, you know, uh, even theater set up awards saying there is something here that can be measured. There is some kind of greatness that we can say some people have more of it. Some people have less of it. What I also found, if we get back to the um, other legs of the stool, is that the media was often more hostile to celebrities than the public was. And I think that has to do with the fact that journalists often resent that they have to cover celebrities in order to attract readers. So it's never simply the case that the media makes celebrities. That's the myth. If, if we read um, The Image Makers, a very influential book by Daniel Burstyn, he suggests that the media single-handedly can make celebrities. It's really not true. The media often tries to make people famous and fails. There has to be some kind of spark that connects the public to the celebrities. And in the era of theater, of course, people could go to the theater and see celebrities without learning about them from the press. There were lots of theaters, people would go to them, and it was part of their pleasure in attending the theater to say, oh, that one's going to be the next big star. There's also, and I think this was more true in theater, probably remains true in politics, things where people have long memories. There was a generational historical habit of the star of a particular generation needing to be measured up against the star of a previous generation. I think this still happens in sports. Take a a sport like boxing. I'll pick that one because I know more about it than others. The the champions of today are often being compared to the champions of previous eras. Sometimes you even have a, an almost cross-generational match and it's never an equal match because boxing is something where as you get older, it, it's, you're just not as good often as the younger people, you're more experienced, but you're less fit in theater. And this is more true in theater than in film. What would happen is there'd be certain key roles And by playing that role, you'd be testing yourself against the great stars of the past. So for male actors, it's Hamlet. For female actors in the 19th century, it tended to be Marguerite Gautier in The Lady of the Camellias, the play on which Verdi's opera La Traviata is based. So you would see articles where they would say, who, and and that was also filmed by Greta Garbo as Camille. Who was the greatest Camille, the newspapers would ask. And they would show six or seven different actresses and compare them to one another. And this was another way of 
making celebrities seem more legitimate, more uh, based on metrics, more based on not so much super objective judgments, but on connoisseurship, on very informed judgments. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And, and part of what you talk about in your book in terms of doing the, doing the research on, on this was not just to go back to newspapers and look at how they um, critiqued a performance, which you also did, but you spend a lot of time looking at scrapbooks to get at sort of an understanding of the celebrity around people like Sarah Bernhardt before we had mass media or Twitter um, or even, you know, regular access to photography. Can you talk about how you found your way into these scrapbooks and what they talked to you about in terms of understanding celebrity? Absolutely. I think every historical project is defined in a lot of ways by the types of sources it it uses. And you can write new histories when you find new kinds of sources that haven't been looked at before. And the scrapbooks, I think, in that way, really um, are key to the arguments I'm making in the drama of celebrity. So I'm not a historian by training. I'm a literature professor, but I've always worked simultaneously as a literary critic and a historian. And I have a lot of friends who are historians. And I noticed that they were always saying, oh, yeah, and when I was in Dubuque <laughs> for a conference, I thought I'd do a, a spot of research and drop in on an archive. So I was in Columbus, Ohio for a conference, and I thought, I'm going to do what my historian friends do, a spot of research. So I looked up the OSU catalog. I looked up Sarah Bernhardt. And I learned something I didn't even know, which was that OSU has one of the best theater collections in the world, certainly in the United States. And they have many Sarah Bernhardt archival sources and some rare print sources. And one of them was red leather albums. So I reached out to the librarian and she said, sure, you can come look at those. And in fact, we have about 120 scrapbooks that have never been cataloged and that no one has ever looked at. Would you like to see them? And I said, yeah, yes, I would. So when I looked at them, um, they, it was a very Ohio-centric collection and particularly focused on Columbus, which was not the theater capital of Ohio. I would say that was much more uh, probably split between Cleveland and Cincinnati. And just the, just imagine boxes and boxes of albums, often enormous, like, you know, I don't know, like 16 by 11 sometimes bound in leather and stamped in gold, attesting to lives spent going to the theater. And I had read a lot about theater history at that point. Tracy Davis is a scholar who's done an amazing job of recreating the business of theater in the 19th century and therefore the volume of ticket sales. But these were scrapbooks made by individuals, ordinary people often anonymous. Many of them didn't even write their names in their scrapbooks. And 
they were going to the theater once a week. Sometimes in summer or when they went on a vacation, they would go to the theater or to some kind of live entertainment, the circus, a variety show, a music hall. Every night they'd go to dinner and then they'd go to a show. These were sometimes clearly very wealthy people and sometimes clearly middle-class people. It was also obvious from the scrapbooks that there were so many different kinds of theaters. There were, you know, vaudeville shows that were a little more racy. There were people who only went to see Wagner operas. And all of a sudden what came alive for me was the centrality of theater in the lives of people before film displaced, film and radio, I would say, before film and radio displaced theater as the primary form of, of leisure entertainment. The, the scrapbooks were filled with programs. The programs were telling me so much about the ways that international stars traveled. So I could see that someone who was just going, you know, to one of three theaters all the time, we're seeing actors from Germany, from Italy, from France, from Scandinavia, and people I'd never heard of, actors I'd never heard of had in successful international careers. I could see the place that Sarah Bernhardt had in these, so that was a great way of testing. You know, sometimes a lot of the material about celebrities is, is puffery. It's just generated by PR firms, and it's a lot of BS. And it doesn't necessarily mean they were real stars. So one of the ways I used the scrapbooks was to ask myself, was Sarah Bernhardt a superstar? And the answer was yes. People who normally would put three programs on a page of their scrapbook, when they had gone to see a Sarah Bernhardt show, they only put her on a page. No one could be near her. It was a way of saying, this was really a special event in my theater going life. The materials that were used for Sarah Bernhardt's tours were of a higher level, which suggested she was making more money than most people. And actually, one of the most precious sources that I found also at OSU was a ledger from around the World War I years from a major Columbus, Ohio theater. And I was able to verify that Sarah Bernhardt asked for better terms than other actors, received them, and still made more money for the theater where she played than other people where the theater could keep a higher percentage of the box office. So even, you know, in the 1910s, when she was in her 60s, people were flocking to see her. And it was also just very moving to see the different, like just how invested people were in actors. So, you know, one of the questions someone might have reasonably asked me was, yes, people were interested in the theater, but does that really mean they were interested in theatrical celebrities? And the scrapbooks made that clear. People had a chance, uh, some of these scrapbooks had pre-printed categories to sort of urge people to be amateur drama critics. And they would say, you know, talk about the production, talk about the staging, talk about the actors. And the things people most filled in in those categories were like who they went to the play with. So theater going was clearly a very social experience for them and who the actors were and what they felt about the actors. And you could see all the same kind of gushing and affection and even obsession that you see with fans today, all directed at theatrical actors who now you'd have to be a real specialist to even know who they were. So that the 
the discussion that you have in terms of this early form of celebrity where Sarah Bernhardt's way ahead of her time by getting paid more, um, particularly as a female star um, in, in the productions that she's in. But you also talked about the fact um, in the beginning of our podcast and also in the book that Hollywood itself sort of said they were the makers of celebrity. But you point out that it was a very brief period of time where there was a kind of ability to produce stars by Hollywood and that they weren't, in fact, the ones responsible for sort of our contemporary celebrity culture. Uh, Hollywood absolutely just took over a star system that already existed in the theater. And in fact, most of the early stars of Hollywood films, Silent and Talkie, started their careers on Broadway, something I learned by looking at scrapbooks. So just to take an example, and I consider myself pretty knowledgeable about the kind of classic Hollywood era. I didn't know that Barbara, I hadn't read a biography of Barbara Stanwyck, so I didn't know loads about her. But I, So I didn't know that she started out on, on in New York theater. But here I was looking at a scrapbook, actually this time, a, that one that was held at my home institution, Columbia University, that mixed programs from movies and stage productions. And there was Barbara Stanwyck in a play before she became a Hollywood star. So a lot of people were moving back and forth between Hollywood and Broadway for decades, but usually they start, I mean, there there are exceptions clearly, but many, many, many of them started on Broadway and went to Hollywood. But here's the thing about 19th century stage celebrities. They tended to have a lot of autonomy. Typically, what an incredibly successful theatrical star did in the 19th century was eventually, actually pretty quickly, lease their own theater, start their own staging company. There were no directors as we know them in 19th century theater. The lead star tended to be the director. Sometimes the author of the play also tried to direct. Sometimes they cooperated or fought with each other. Sometimes it was just the author, but most of the time it was the lead star. So Henry Irving, one of the great British actors, Edwin Booth, one of the great US actors, Sarah Bernhardt, the great French actor, but many, many more. They all started their own theaters, gave them, usually gave them their names, not always. And they then were producers, directors. They decided what they played. They commissioned plays that would play to their strengths. They weren't answering to anybody. They were completely in charge of their careers, kind of the way we imagine authors are. They still had to make sure people came and bought tickets or they would have gone broke and not been able to pay the rent on their theater, just as authors need to make sure that they get published. But there is just a lot of aesthetic autonomy. And that's important because especially in most of the aesthetic theories of the 20th century, the autonomy of the artist is what defines them as being an artist. And one of the reasons that we tend to dismiss celebrities is we see them as created by others, controlled by others, and fake. Those are the the three most common um, attacks. And I mean, we can talk about the authenticity fake issue in a minute if you're interested in it, but it was clearly the case that the biggest stars in the 19th century who were actors, who were performers, had a lot of autonomy 
and were able to be original and creative. Hollywood did change that because Hollywood had a completely different economic model. You had to work for a studio. You couldn't, uh, well, you, you could make your own films, but they're really what, and, and there are histories of independent filmmaking that go way back. But because it was a vertically integrated system, if you wanted to really get your films across the world in movie theaters, especially in the United States, you had to make them with a studio. And the studios quickly learned that the less autonomy their workers had, the easier it was for them to run their business. And so they treated stars like workers. And when stars got too, well, the moguls would say too difficult. When stars like Betty Davis said, I don't want to play that role. I want to play this role. I want to play it this way. They would use the contracts they had formed with them, which were usually made when the stars weren't stars yet. And they would lay them off if the stars were insubordinate. They would force them to play roles they didn't want to play. None of that happened in 19th century theater. So I would say that Hollywood both adopted a theatrical star system that already existed, but studied it fairly carefully and said, where is this not good for us as entrepreneurs and bosses and how can we change that? And they did. That was also the case that although many Hollywood stars cultivated relationships with different media figures and especially had to keep gossip columnists, columnists like Luella Parsons and Walter Winchell happy, the their bosses, the studio heads, had very cozy relationships with the press and used those sometimes to blackmail and manipulate their stars. So someone like Marilyn Monroe is an interesting case in this regard. I mean, we I think Marilyn Monroe is a great example of someone that we might tend to dismiss because she was so sexualized and her persona, her 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 role that she created for herself was quote unquote, the dumb blonde, but she was a genius at handling the press. She was a genius at putting her bosses in a situation where they had to do what she asked. So for example, when she was having some trouble with uh, one studio head over a role that either he wanted her to play or that, that she, he wouldn't let her play what she wanted to play. I can't remember the, the, the minutia of it. Um, she, he, he sort of threatened to lay her off. And she said, well, okay. And then she went to Korea to entertain the troops and got great publicity. And she knew how to circumvent the studio's control of the press by establishing a direct relationship with the press and using it to her advantage. And, and that's, you know, you sort of talk about the fact that in, in a more contemporary period, because of things like Twitter and other social media, that stars can, in fact, directly engage with the public um, in ways that are like what you know Marilyn Monroe did um, or other stars have done in terms of sort of circumventing the, the way that they were constrained by some contracts. Um, but I did, I would love for you to talk a little bit about this question of authenticity and fake with regard to celebrity, because it also dives into the question or the issue of the feminization, where a lot of the women who are considered to be celebrities are often considered to be vacuous or fake, as opposed mm. to others. Right. You know, I, and it's a great question and something that 
I could have written the entire book about. I decided not to because I made the intellectual call that at the end of the day, that was less about celebrity and more about gender. Women have been seen as, you know, unfairly seen as deceptive and inauthentic and performing and hiding their real selves far more than men but for, for millennia. And I, you know, celebrity is not going to be free of any of those gender stereotypes. But it seemed to me that that was less about celebrity per se and more about pre-existing gender prejudices. I mean, how, on, how it is that, you know, I don't know, a figure like Mick Jagger is not seen as inauthentic, but a figure like Taylor Swift is, it just blows my mind. I, my answer would be like, of course, celebrities are inauthentic. They're performing a role. I don't find their inauthenticity malicious. I find it socially appropriate. Nobody is going to act in public as they would act in private. Celebrities have a very uh, complicated role to enact because they are often presenting themselves as as offering some piece of their private self, a glimpse, a behind the scenes glimpse to the public. And of course, those behind the scenes glimpses are carefully thought through. I think it's fairly rare that we're seeing the opposite of how the person is. But, you know, like when people say, oh, celebrities are inauthentic because, you know, Joan Crawford acted like she was a good mother, but she really wasn't. Like, first of all, no one really thought Joan Crawford was a great mother. <laughs> you read about what was uh, going on at the time and people knew that she was, people in Hollywood certainly knew she was a terrible mother. I don't think, I think that people use celebrity as a fantasy. And so if they want to believe a fantasy, they're going to believe a fantasy. But in general, I would say, so to flip this, I would say that the public is also much less naive than the inauthenticity critique suggests. The inauthenticity critique goes something like the stars act one way, but they're really another, but a gullible public believes everything they see about these idealized figures. You know, Joshua Gamson in his book, Claims to Fame, I think did a very good job of dismantling that and saying that one of the things that the public actually enjoys is testing the difference between the public persona and who the person really is. They know there's a difference and they like being a little bit either in the know about insider knowledge or just plain cynical about it. I think that fandom certainly encompasses a certain amount of, oh, I know they're just acting like that. They're not really like that. Um, and I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit, you know, towards the, at the end of the book, you, you note how you started the book in 2008, checking CNN at the Paris archives. Um, and you concluded the book um, in 2016, um, checking the election outcomes. Um, and you also talk about how the celebrity culture is tied to our consumer capitalism and that it's an interesting dynamic, particularly in context of the sort of American mythos with regard to individualism um, and how that is really embedded in this kind of political dimensions of our understanding of and thinking about celebrity. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of foundational construct for considering celebrity at this point? So, you know, 
as I said at the beginning, when we glanced at this topic, I think that individualism and, say, democratization or mass culture go hand in hand. The more there's a concept of society, the more interconnected people get, the more social life takes on massive dimensions, the more people are going to value its counterpart, which is the individual who gives the air of not caring about what other people think or the individual who stands apart from the crowd. And individualism has a lot of downsides. It's, you know, it it can be... uh, a way of ignoring how interconnected we all are and how interdependent we all are. It can be a way of neglecting how much each of us owes other people for anything we achieve. But unlike a lot of certainly humanities professors, I'm a little more sympathetic to the idea of individualism because I do believe that interconnected as we are, we experience ourselves sort of within the bounds of a, an individualized body and consciousness. Like, for example, I know what I'm thinking a lot better than I know what anyone else is thinking. I know what I'm feeling or what sensations I'm having a lot better than I can other people's. I can make conjectures about those, but there, there is a difference between my relationship to myself and my relationship to other people. And I think that's the foundation of our, our fascination with individuals. I think we're fascinated with individuals because we're fascinated with ourselves. And there are, you know, positive and negative sides to that, as there are to so many things. And and so I was I was really intrigued by that as I was sort of thinking about the role that celebrity has with regard to democracy in particular. And you you really do a nice job of taking the reader through, sort of thinking about how celebrity became to be and how how it sort of shifts, but that it maintains itself in this kind of democratic realm because the people are part of the celebrity dynamic. Yes. I mean, one of the things that a lot of studies of celebrity have said, especially the most widely cited ones, is that, you know, celebrities are sort of produced and that they're not really the result of of a sort of a a democratized popularity contest. And I really disagree with that. I don't think that anyone who stays a celebrity for very long, let's say for more than five years, can do so without being genuinely popular. And I also think that whenever someone is genuinely popular, there's something there that is a skill or a talent, even if it's just a skill or talent at provoking people or at engaging people. You can't ignore that. You Unfortunately or fortunately, you can't ignore that in a democracy. And um, I don't think there's really anything that I liked about Donald Trump, but I was very alert to the ways that people I knew and also the, the media that I tend to read were either demonizing would be too strong a word, but, you know, quite critical of his followers, of his many, many, many followers, Um, because it resonated with me. Structurally, it was so similar to how people had talked about, say, Sarah Bernhardt's followers. And it's not distinctive to Sarah Bernhardt. You could say the same about, I don't know, the people who followed the actor Rudolph Valentino. There is something that, uh, so even as democracy 
is all about getting the biggest number of votes and therefore engaging masses of people. There is something that we in democratic societies find disturbing about masses of people when they're really excited about something. So Sarah Bernhardt's followers were parodied as being savages, as being violent, as being ignorant, as being, I think I would use the word uppity, as being people of lesser status who via their identification with Sarah Bernhardt sort of felt themselves more empowered. Um, And none of it was really true, but there was clearly something that just disturbed people in the media who saw themselves as as tastemakers and arbiters of what was and wasn't worthy of attention about this French actress getting so many people's attention. And I think that many of us were equally disturbed at the ability of Donald Trump, someone with no experience in elected officer in government, someone who had been on a reality show, being able to get the nomination for the Republican nomination for president, and then elicit all these people to vote. And, you know, in one case, I may be more in agreement with the criticisms of the celebrity and their followers than the others, but structurally, I can't help but be struck by the, the similarities, which means that there's something going on here that isn't about the specifics. And I think that, I don't know, maybe, you know, much as we believe in democracy, and this comes back to the weird relationship to individualism. Much as we believe in democracy, I think a lot of us still also think that maybe there are people who are smarter or more talented and maybe they should be running things. And so there's an ongoing tension between elitism and democratization, just as there is between individualism and a kind of mass society. I, I think that is really fascinating in terms of thinking about both politics and the understanding of celebrity. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Sharon, what are you working on now that you finished this amazing book, not only about Sarah Bernhardt, but about thinking about celebrity? I am one of these people who tends to put everything I've got into the book I write on a topic, and then sometimes I don't return to it again. Um, And I seem to be gearing up to be that person again, because I'm actually writing a very short book called Reading as If for Death. So um, really, for most of the period that I was working on this book about celebrity, my wife, Ellis Avery, a novelist herself, uh, a writer and a teacher, was... um, contending with cancer and also with a chronic autoimmune disease. And she sort of, it was, it was a long, uh, it was a long road, but in 2017, she had a recurrence of the cancer and then she died in 2019. So the last years of my working on the book about celebrity were really marked by what was happening with Ellis. And, And she was writing through all of this and also, doing amazing things like studying to become a nurse practitioner. And she just kept hoping that science would save her, but it didn't. And I am writing a short book now about three books I was reading uh, right when Ellis got diagnosed with a recurrence of cancer while she was getting chemotherapy and we didn't know if it would work or not. And um, a book that I, these are all books I uh reread actually. Um, and then a book I reread right soon after she died. So I'm just thinking through what 
these works of literature, um, Neville Shoots on the Beach, Henry James's Wings of the Dove, and Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis teach us about living with death, living with dying, surviving the death of a loved one, being a caretaker. It sounds like an incredibly topical book for our time as well. Yeah, it's interesting because you know one of the things that was very striking to me while Ellis and I were going through this experience was how so many people totally understandably found it really impossible to talk to us about what was happening. There's a lot of avoidance and denial and fear and um, why wouldn't there be? But during this pandemic, so I sort of joke like, oh, well, you know, I'll write a book about things nobody wants to think about or talk about. But during the pandemic, we've all had to confront mortality, the lack of control we have over whether we are well or ill, the limits of science and medicine that can't do everything, that can't cure everything, at least certainly not right away. So it has become a topic that I think people are much more willing to engage with if for now. I, I hope for all of our sakes that that condition ends soon and that we go back to being a society where people aren't thinking about illness and death all the time. Um, yes, that would be nice. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to thank you, though, for joining me today to talk about the drama of celebrity. Um, it really is a fascinating book, and I appreciate your time. This was published in 2019 by Princeton University Press, and I believe it's available at Princeton University Press's website. Is there any place else that you'd like to give a shout out to? Yeah, well, one thing I'll say is it's available as an audiobook, which I think is appealing to a lot of people. And I, um, I sort of use the best practices from disability studies for making sure that even if you don't see the images, you know what they look like. They're all described in great detail because it's a heavily illustrated book. And I encourage everybody when buying books to go to bookshop.org because it supports independent bookstores. So when you buy your books from them, you are supporting independent bookstores, which is incredibly important right now during a pandemic when many of them can't be open for business. Thank you again for joining me today, Sharon Marcus. Thank you.